It's so good to be at church today. It's so good to see you guys. Hey, if this is your very first time, welcome to Mission Church. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, my name's Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, our entire staff was actually down in Los Angeles this last week at a conference called Zoe Conference, which is led by Pastor Chad Veach. And it was such a fun time. He's actually an overseer at our church. And uh, so that's half of our team flew back uh, super late last night. We're here. We made it. We're kind of delirious, but we're so excited about what Jesus is going to do. Come on. I've had five cups of coffee so far this morning. <laughs> Don't judge me. Pray for me. Uh, so between that and the Holy Spirit, we're going to be okay. You know what I'm saying? Um, but uh, I, I was actually, I had a message all planned out, all figured out before even the conference. And while I was down there, I just felt like the Lord said, oh, we're, I'm calling an audible and I want you to preach an entirely different message. So I hope that's okay. Uh, the title of my message, if you're taking notes, is Ankle Deep. And I'm just going to be real. It's, 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 it's going to be kind of raw because it's everything that the Lord's been teaching me lately. And so I hope it can encourage you. So we're going to read here a, a portion of scripture together, Ezekiel chapter 47. It'll be on the screens. And then I'm going to pray one more time and we're just going to dive right into this message this morning. But Ezekiel chapter 47 Beginning in verse 1, this is what the scriptures say. When he, he, by the way, that's a, a divine messenger. And then me, this is written in first person, it's Ezekiel. So when he brought me back to the temple's entrance, I noticed that the water was flowing toward the east from under the temple's threshold. The temple faced east. The water was going out from under the temple's facade toward the south, south of the altar. And he led me out towards the north gate and around outside the outer east gate where the water flowed out under the facade of the south side. And with a line in his hand, the man went out toward the east. And when he measured off 1,500 feet, he made me cross the water. It was ankle deep. Everybody say ankle deep. Come on, it was ankle deep. He measured off another 1,500 feet and made me cross the water. It was knee deep. He measured off another 1,500 and made me cross the water, and it was waist high. He, when he measured off another 1,500 feet, it became a river that I couldn't cross. The water was high, deep enough for swimming, but too high to cross. And he said to me, human one, do you see? And then he led me back to the edge of the river. And when I went back, I saw very many trees on both banks of the river. And he said to me, these waters go out towards the eastern region, flow deep into the sleep slopes and into the dead sea. And when the flowing waters enter the sea, its river becomes fresh. Wherever the river flows, every living thing will, that moves will thrive. There will be great schools of fish because when these waters enter the sea, it will be fresh. Wherever the river flows, everything will live. And verse 12. On both banks of the river will grow up all kinds of fruit-bearing trees. Their leaves won't wither. Their fruitfulness won't wane. They will produce fruit in every month because their water comes from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for eating and their leaves for healing. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Again, Lord, we can't thank you enough for this just moment that we have together. Lord, may we never forget how special it is that we get to actually gather together as a community because of what you did. And we get to experience your love, and we get to experience your presence. And so I just pray that, Jesus, you would use this passage of Scripture. I thank you for your word and what a gift it is to us. But would you use this passage of Scripture now to take us deeper, to bring us even closer to your heart. And so again, Lord, we can't say this enough. Would you open up our eyes? Would you open up our ears? Would you open up our lives? And would you, Jesus, lead us and change us today? We love you so much in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen, amen. Awesome. Hey, a little bit about Ezekiel uh, before we kind of really, really dive in. Ezekiel's name means God strengthens. 
God strengthens. This guy named Ezekiel was a prophet in the 6th century BC. He also belonged to a family of priests, so he was a priest. He was married until the untimely death of his wife, which is actually recorded in the book. Uh, We know that he probably considered the other prophet, Jeremiah, somewhat of a mentor. In fact, Jeremiah was several years older than Ezekiel, and so Ezekiel looked up to Jeremiah, was very familiar with Jeremiah's writings, and actually built on a lot of Jeremiah's themes. Now, the other thing we know is that Ezekiel was 30 years old when he received his first vision from God and really was kind of called to be a prophet in Israel and more specifically in Judah, which is the southern tribe of Israel. So he's 30 years old and he receives this vision. I got to be honest, the vision is really intense. It's recorded in the first part of the book of Ezekiel, and it's basically about the temple in Judah, in Jerusalem, being absolutely decimated, like absolutely destroyed, absolutely deconstructed. Like, that's his inaugural vision, so to speak. And Ezekiel's point in even receiving this vision and in proclaiming it throughout all of Judah is this, that Judah, as a people, has constantly and consistently rejected following God. And so God finally gets to this place where he's warned them time and time again so lovingly, and he says, okay, I'm going to let you do your thing. I'm going to let you go your own way. And Judah is now really reaping the consequences, the negative consequences of a life that's actually lived without God. And the context, the historical context during this time when he first had this vision was one of emotional turmoil and political chaos. The Babylonians had invaded Judah. In fact, they had even kidnapped the king of Judah, brought him to Babylon. He was in captivity. He was a prisoner. And then they had kind of put in a different king in his place and used him as as a puppet. And they had already taken a a huge uh, portion of the population to Babylon. In fact, Ezekiel was one of those people. Ezekiel was actually taken captive, brought into Babylon, and lived the majority of his life in exile. So Ezekiel's calling, Ezekiel's purpose, Ezekiel was, he was so kind of, um, man, his story was one of brokenness and one of being in the fire. And so he's speaking from this profound experience of really knowing God in that context. It's incredible. And now 20 years later, after this inaugural vision, he's 50 years old, and he has another vision. It's it's the passage of scripture that we just read. And what's so amazing is when you read through the entire book, it kind of takes you on this journey, and you read this this vision that we just read, and all of a sudden it's it's, it's the temple, that same temple that was destroyed, the same temple that was deconstructed, the same temple that was decimated, and all of a sudden this temple is is being brought back to life. And and we see in it, we see this this river flowing through it, which symbolizes life, and, 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 and we see vegetation all around, we see trees blossoming, we see things coming back to life, fish in a dead sea. I mean, we see this picture of vitality, this picture of promise, this picture of hope, this picture of grace, this picture of life to the fullest. And if we could even just pause for a moment, I think some of us need that message today. I think some of us just need to hear this as simple as it sounds, is that you are not beyond hope. And the book of Ezekiel and this particular portion in Ezekiel 47 just screams that message loud and clear. You're not beyond hope. Your marriage is not beyond hope. Your dreams are not beyond hope. Your kids are not beyond hope. Your future is not beyond hope. Your life is not beyond hope. And I think our world needs to hear this message. Because what's so interesting is that, man, the Babylonians haven't invaded our land, but talk about emotional turmoil, talk about political chaos, talk about a broken world that we live in today. 
And so what I would like to do is actually together as a church travel through this portion of scripture, Ezekiel chapter 47, and really travel through it together because I think there are three things that we can actually learn from it that will give us hope for today, hope for our lives and hope that we can extend to each other. So here's here's my first point, the first observation from this portion of scripture. It's this, that water is flowing. Water is flowing. If you're taking notes, that's the first point. Water is flowing. Now, it's important for me to kind of do a little bit of teaching before we really get into even more preaching here this morning. The genre of the book of Ezekiel is what we call prophetic. So Ezekiel is a, is a work of, of prophecy, which means a couple of things. The first thing is this, that Ezekiel uses this literary technique, which is called visionary writing. Visionary writing. What that means is that he actually transports readers into this imaginative world. So if you see this, all of a sudden, Ezekiel is being transported back. He's in Babylon. This is where he's actually living, and yet the Holy Spirit transports him through this vision back to the land of Jerusalem, and he sees the vision of the temple. So this is part of the kind of prophetic nature of this genre. So it actually takes a little bit of imagination for us to even follow Ezekiel as we read the scripture. And the other thing that he uses is this thing called symbolic reality. Symbolic reality. And what that means is that the most important ingredients kind of in this portion of scripture are actually symbols. So there's a lot of symbolism here. There's a lot of things that we're going to unpack and kind of get at together. And the first thing we see is all of a sudden you're in this temple and river starts flowing out of it. A river starts flowing out of the temple. Water starts coming out of a temple. Here we have this thing that's not really like, it's not very realistic, but then that's the symbol that we have here in this portion of scripture. In fact, the exact verbiage that Ezekiel uses in verse one is this, I noticed that water was flowing. I noticed that water was flowing. Man, we're just gonna get right at it this morning. I think this is what it communicates, man. There is no shortage of water in the kingdom of God. Heaven is never in a drought. Some of you guys need to realize that. That heaven's never in a drought. There was no shortage of grace. There was no shortage of mercy. There was no shortage of revelation. There is no shortage of, of power. There is no shortage of peace. There's no shortage of forgiveness. There's no shortage of love when we follow Jesus Christ. And some of us need to realize that. Heaven's never in a drought. There's no shortage of water. What there is sometimes is a shortage of faith on our parts. A shortage of faith on our part. There's this story in, in the Gospels, which the Gospels are the autobiographies of, or the, the biographies of Jesus. And John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it's the story of Jesus' very first miracle. It says this, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, They don't have any wine. And Jesus replied, Woman, what does it have to do with me? By the way, if you're a kid, never say that to your mom, Okay. Like, we read that in the English, and we're like, woman, you know, and we're like, whoa, Jesus, that's kind of intense, you know. In Greek, that was kind of a common way to talk, to be honest. Okay, anyway, we're moving on, okay. Jesus replied, woman, what does that have to do with me? Again, kids, don't say that to your mom. My time has not come yet, and Jesus' mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby, there were six stone water jars used for Jewish cleansing ritual, each able to hold 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some of it and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And the head waiter tasted the water that had now become wine. He didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the groom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. They bring out the second-rate wine only when the guests have drinking freely. You kept the good wine until now. You kept the good wine until now. 
Man, there's this, this phrase that just pierces me every single time I read this passage of Scripture, and it's this. It's in verse 7. They filled them to the brim. They filled them to the brim. Jesus doesn't tell the servants how full to fill the water jars. He just says, hey, put some water in it. Put some water in the jars. And it's so interesting to me that the servants actually fill them to the brim. They fill them as, as full as possible. The servants easily could have thought to themselves, man, what Jesus is asking is absolutely absurd. Because the problem is not a shortage of water. The problem is a shortage of wine. And yet here Jesus is saying, hey, fill these water jars with water. They could have easily said, this doesn't make sense. They could have easily just put a splash of water. They could have put a half full in there. They could have said, man, I don't even want to work that hard. And yet, what do they do? They, they fill it to the fullest. If I could be real with you, you will never experience the fullness of God by filling your life only half full. Ever. Jesus loves us enough to work with whatever we give him, and yet the reality is, if we only give him half of our hearts, we will only experience half of the relationship that we could have with Jesus. If we only give him half of our lives, we will only live up to half the potential that he's actually called us and created us to live. We are only limited by our level of faith. And, and I, I, I look at my own life, and, and I wonder how many miracles have I missed out on seeing and being a part of because I filled the jar of my life only half full. I, I look at my life, and I wonder how many opportunities to share the love and the comfort of Jesus Christ that I, with the people around me that are hurting and broken and, and, and weary that I have missed because I filled the jar of my life only half full. I wonder how many detours Jesus has actually had to very graciously take me on to get me back on track because I filled the jar of my life only half full. You see, the reality is we can't spill over if we're only half full. And Jesus hasn't called us to a life that's half full. Jesus has called us to a life of overflow, a life that spills over. A couple of months ago, to transition, uh, I got my first tattoo, if you guys haven't noticed. Boom, there it is, okay? And it's, it's kind of a small miracle in itself because I do not do well with blood and needles, all right? I'm just going to get out there. Those things are my, like, my kryptonite. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll share just a story to kind of emphasize just how bad I am with this. Okay, about six years ago, I was working at a different church and got life insurance. And so uh, the, the, I was kind of communicated, hey, the nurse can actually just come to your apartment. It's super easy. They'll do kind of the test, the physical exam, just at your own place. So that way you don't even have to go into the, the doctor's office. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. So the nurse comes and she does all these, you know, like physical, you know, whatever you do at a physical exam, okay? And she does all this stuff and, and, and she asked me to lay down on the couch to take my blood and for some reason, I, I was like, oh, man, I forgot that you actually have to do that on these kind of things. And so all of a sudden, I start getting nervous, but I'm laying down. She takes my blood. And then and usually that's the last thing. Like, usually that's the last thing that you do in a physical exam. And the nurse or the doctor just says, hey, okay, just take your time. Don't get up too soon. You get up whenever you feel, you know, you, you're ready. Here's a cup of water. I mean, usually they kind of, like, nurse you even in that way. And yet she just puts this cup on my chest. And forgive me for being a little bit vulgar, but she just say, okay, go go pee in the cup now. And I'm like, okay, I got it. You know, I, I sit up, and all of a sudden my head starts spinning. Anybody, anybody like this? Am I, is this just me? Okay, whew. 
Just knowing I'm not alone here, okay? I need some support. I need some support. I need some love. And, and so I, all of a sudden, my, my head's kind of spinning, and she looks at me, and she goes, hey, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm going to be good, you know? And, and so I, I, I stand up. I start walking to my bathroom, and every single step, my head is just spinning more and more, and I'm getting more and more lightheaded. And so I open up the bathroom door, and I close the bathroom door. And then by the time I'm actually in the restroom, I mean, my, like, head is just, it's spinning, like, I mean, I feel like I'm seeing stars and everything's starting to go black. And so I do what every, you know, intelligent person would do in that moment. And I start, you know, peeing in the cup. And the next thing, the next thing I know, I mean, I'm just bam. And, and I'm waking up and I'm on the floor and the nurse comes and opens up the door and she sees me and I look down and my, my pants are at my ankles. I'm, hurl, I'm like curled up in the fetal position around the toilet, you know, and, and, and she, no joke, she's a nurse, a trained professional. This, this shouldn't be okay, but she actually lets out a little like scream like, ah, you know, and runs out of the, the, the bathroom. And so I'm just on the bathroom floor naked, like humiliated, you know, and she, I, I hear her yelling from my kitchen do you have any grape juice do you have any sugar do you have any chocolate and I'm like oh my gosh what is happening you know it was humiliating now to make it even worse fast forward about three four weeks and I'm in the church offices and we have another staff member that came on the the the, the, the staff uh, around that same time and so she comes into the church offices and I'm just I'm working I'm at my my desk I'm in my office and she walks by she she's walking down the hall she walks by and we make eye contact and and I swear, she chuckles. <laughs> it's not okay. Like, that's so unprofessional. She literally, she's walking by, and she's like, <laughs> what just happened? Like, are, are you kidding me? You know, it's terrible, okay? And then, and so I, I tried to learn from this experience. And so the next time I had to give blood, I, I, I was at the doctor's office, and I was like, hey, just, just to give you a heads up, like, I really, really don't do well with, with needles and with blood, and she goes, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, no, I don't think you understand. Like, I, I passed out naked once in front of somebody. Like, I really don't do well with blood and with needles. And she goes, no, you're fine. I was like, no, for real. Like, I, I think I need to lay down, like, something. She goes, you'll be fine. And she leaves. I'm like, okay, joke's going to be on you, you know. And so she comes back into the doctor's office. She takes my blood, and she's like, see, isn't that fine? And I don't know what happened to me, but all of a sudden, everything started to go, like, woo, you know. And so I, I literally, I'm sticking my feet on her computer, trying to make sure I don't slide out of the chair and pass out. I mean, I, I just, I really don't do well. So that's why I'm saying, when I get a tattoo, man, I mean, it's a small miracle, I'm going to downtown Oakland to this guy named Stash, and I'm like, man, like, I better not pass out in front of this guy. It's going to be one of the most humiliating moments of my life. And so I'm trying to do a pep talk. Jacqueline's there with me. She's literally feeding me Sour Patch Kids to keep my blood sugar level up, you know? I'm like, okay, I can't pass out. I can't pass out. I can't pass out. And I got it. Woo! Praise the Lord. That was my whole entire point in saying, I'm just kidding. But the tattoo says parasan, and it's a Greek word that actually means Extraordinary. And several months ago, I, I just I couldn't get away from what I felt like the Lord was just teaching me over and over again, that everything in our lives, if we surrender it to Jesus Christ, actually feeds the extraordinary. Like, like every twist and turn, every up and down, every disappointment, every heartbreak, every moment of suffering and pain, like literally everything that we go through in our lives, no matter how good, no matter how bad, no matter how ugly, if we surrender it to Jesus Christ, actually makes our life story even more extraordinary. And I wanted that reminder all the time. So that no matter what I was walking through, I knew, hey, it's going to feed the extraordinary. Because Jesus is here with me. One of, one of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, he writes that, he's a German theologian, but he, he writes that 
that the hallmark of the Christian is the extraordinary. In other words, we're, we're called to live a parasan life. We're, we're called to live an extraordinary life. And it's so funny because actually after I got my tattoo, you, you'd think it would have been before, but after I got my tattoo, I started to realize just how, how many times this word parasan is actually in the scriptures. It's all over the place. I knew it was in Matthew chapter 5, but all of a sudden I, I read John 10, 10 in the Greek, and I realized the thief enters only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they would have life, indeed, so that they could have life parasan, to the fullest. And then you keep reading your Bible and you get to this book called Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, the apostle Paul is writing to the church and he says, Glory to God who is able to do parasong, far beyond all that we could ask and all that we could imagine by his power at work within us. You see, the extraordinary life is one of superabundance. It's one that spills over. It's one that overflows. And we will never live that kind of life if we fill the jars of our hearts only half full. Man, we have to understand that water is flowing. There's no shortage in the kingdom of God. There's no drought in heaven. The only shortage that happens is a shortage of faith within ourselves. So the first point, water is flowing. Here's the second point. It flows from God's presence. It flows from God's presence. See, Ezekiel, he continues to write in Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1, and he, this is the next thing he says. He says, the water was going out from under the temple. Under the temple, it's significant where this water is actually coming from. It's flowing from God's presence. A few months ago, Pastor Tyler and I had the incredible opportunity to um, go up and actually hear uh, Pastor Judah Smith, who's the uh, senior pastor of a church called Home, uh, Church Home. It's based in Seattle and Beverly Hills. And he's just, he's amazing. He's been one of my heroes and inspirations since I was 19 years old. And so I was so excited to hear him. And we actually got to have dinner with him afterwards. He's honestly one of the most gracious dudes I've ever met. And so it was just, it was such a sweet time. And yet we were here and we were listening to his message. And he, 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 he shares this story in his message, which by the way, it's on YouTube, and I, I know I am kind of have a reputation of being a hype guy, um, but I really mean it. I grew up in church. This is one of the top five messages I've ever heard. It's called, What is Divine Persuasion? And so if you have an hour, you can go on YouTube and check it out. It's unreal. But he shares this story in this message about his kids bringing in the groceries. Now, if I were to share that message with you, uh, it would be like two seconds long. It would be like the kids brought in the groceries. And yet somehow Pastor Judah makes it, you know, 20 minutes long. It's just absolutely hilarious because he's talking about like how, you know, kids, you see them like bringing the groceries. And it's, there's never like even the thought of just making multiple trips. In fact, I remember being a kid, too, and my dad, part of my, one of my chores was bringing the groceries. And, and I would never even consider, like, making three or four trips to get all the bags. What would I do? I would stack them on my arms. I'd make sure. I was like, I'm going to do this in one trip, you know? And, and the bags are, like, ripping, and stuff is falling out of it, and the milk is about to spill. I mean, you're like, it's like an art, you know? But you're just like, you're, you're stacking all of these grocery bags, trying to bring them into one trip. And then you finally get them in the house and in the kitchen, and you throw it on the counter. You're like, I'm done. I'm going to go watch cartoons or sports or something, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's an art. And, and, and Pastor Judah, what he was saying was, man, that's how most of us live our Christian lives. Like, like rather than living them in the joy and intimacy and relationship with Jesus, Christianity has become, okay, i got to carry this bag. i got to make sure I have faith today and that I never doubt. And if a doubt comes in my mind, i got to rebuke it in the name of Jesus so that's another bag. And, I can't ever swear because if I swear, I'm a horrible Christian, so that's another bag. And I can't ever have a lustful thought or a prideful thought. If I have a prideful thought, oh, the, the devil was prideful, so I'm doomed. And so that's even an extra bag. And all of a sudden, we start stacking the bags on our hearts 
Because we think that's what it means to actually have faith. We think that's what it means to actually honor Jesus. And all of a sudden, it's sapping the energy out of us and the life out of us and the joy out of us. And we are literally so weary. And we come into church. And I, again, I grew up in church. So I'm speaking from personal experience. Sometimes we come into church and we hear messages like, you got to live an extraordinary life. And all of a sudden, that's another bag because we feel so ordinary. We don't feel anything close to extraordinary. And so we're dying inside just trying to survive. And it's like we get to the, the counter and we're like, I got nothing. I got nothing. Judah, he, in this message, focuses on this, this verse. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And I, I've heard it a million times, but when I, oh man, he preached it. And uh, let me read the verse first. But it's impossible to please God without faith. Everybody say faith. Because the one who draws near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards people who try to find him. The Greek word for faith here is a very interesting word. And this is what Judah unpacks. It, it means divine persuasion. Divine persuasion. You, you see, all of a sudden this verse means something entirely new to most of us. It did to me. It's impossible to please God without divine persuasion. You see, all of a sudden, it's not about what I do, about what you do, about what we do. All of a sudden, it's about what God has already done and what God is actually still doing inside of us. All of a sudden, Christianity is no longer about religion, about all the grocery bags that we're trying to incessantly carry and balance upon ourselves. Rather, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus actually captivating us with his love. It's about Jesus actually pursuing us with his grace. It's about Jesus actually persuading us by who he actually is. And so Judah, oh man, he, he concluded, he goes, the older I get, the simpler my prayers become. And I'm, at this point, man, I mean, I'm like leaning into this message, like hit me with it, you know. And he says, the, the, the prayer I've been praying, it's just, it's this, God persuade me again. And I, I have to admit, I... I I was listening to this message, and at the time, I, I was in a dry place, spiritually speaking. I, I, you know, I, uh, even the hype guy runs out of hype every once in a while. And I was just like, I was feeling it, and I started praying that prayer. God, persuade me again. Like, like be new to me again. Like, make me fresh again. Like, pursue me. Like, captivate me. Like, come after me again with your love. And, man, I'll tell you this. It's a prayer that God, he answers real quickly. Because all of a sudden, man, I started spending time with Jesus, and it was just like boom, boom, boom. I mean, the Lord was just hitting me morning after morning and just bringing me back to life, bringing me back to life. Ezekiel continues. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 3. And with a line in his hand, the man went out toward the east, and when he measured off 1,500 feet, he made me cross the water. It was ankle deep. And he measured off another 1,500 feet and made me cross the water. It was knee deep. And he measured off another 1,500 feet. He made me cross the water, and it was waist high. And when he measured off another 1,500 feet, it became a river that I couldn't even cross. The water was high. It was deep enough for swimming, but too high to cross. I read this scripture a few weeks ago, and the Lord spoke to me, and he said this. He goes, Caleb, you're still ankle deep. And I was like, Lord, what you talking about? You know, like, I've been following you my whole life. I, I, I prayed the prayer when I was three. I started reading the Bible when I was eight. Like, what are you talking about? I'm ankle deep. And the Lord's like, Caleb, you're ankle deep. And I started to realize the Lord's been taking me on this journey. He's like, I, I, still, I still can't wrap my head around grace. I, I still doubt his, his love is actually 
for me. Like there's still insecurities, there's still fears, there's still so much more for me to learn. I've only scratched the surface on how good God is, how real God is, how present with me he is in every situation. I am still ankle deep and I'd like to propose to you this morning and I think we all are. And I think the invitation that we have this morning is to go deeper. To actually go deeper with the Lord. To actually go further in. To actually say, okay, God, persuade me again. Like, 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 take me deeper. Like, I want more of you. I'm ankle deep right now. I'm ankle deep. I keep, I, I'm so stuck on this comment. I shared it in a ministry time a few weeks ago, but it's by a theologian named Carl Barton. He said, grace is only grace when it's incomprehensible. And that's what I keep thinking. I'm like, Lord, I, I, I haven't even begun to understand just how good you are. Like, there's so much more of you that I don't even get, and I want all of you. God, persuade me again. A.W. Tozer is this uh, famous writer and pastor in the 1950s, and he wrote this book called The Pursuit of God, and in my opinion, it's a masterpiece. It's brilliant, but he speaks of the biblical witnesses, of the prophets and the apostles in Scripture, and this is what he says about them. I want to share it to you. This is what he says. He goes, they were prophets, not scribes. For the scribe tells you what he has read, and yet the prophet tells you what he has seen. And the distinction is not an imaginary one. Between the scribe who has read and the prophet who has seen, there is this difference as wide as the sea. And we are overrun today with orthodox scribes. But the prophets, where are they? The hard voice of the scribe sounds over evangelicalism, but the church waits for the tender voice of the saint who has penetrated the veil and gazed with inward eye upon the wonder that is God. And then he says this, and yet to push into the holy presence is a privilege open to every child of God. You see, Christianity is about so much more than information, than head knowledge. Christianity has nothing to do with religion, by the way. Carl Bart, who I just quoted, he, he referred to religion as the anti-God because it actually moves us away from God's heart. He went so far as to say this, religion is unbelief. Why? Because it's the opposite of divine persuasion. It's human performance. And it's the very opposite of the gospel of what Jesus actually came to earth to accomplish for us. And so what Tozer is getting at is that all the people in the Bible, to steal Judah's words, they were persuaded by God. They were convinced by God. They had been pursued by God, and their lives were never the same. And divine persuasion is available to us all. When I was um, five years old, some of you guys know my story, um, my mom uh, cheated on my dad. My dad was a pastor. My family exploded overnight. Over the years to follow, my mom grew more and more verbally abusive, and it became a more and more toxic environment. But one of the first memories I actually have is of my mom frantically packing the suitcase and and me looking at my dad and going, Dad, where, where, where's mom going? And her actually just driving away. And I remember we had split custody, and so everything was just so messy, and it hurt so bad. And I, I didn't want to go over there. And, and yet I, I went over there, and, and I, I just had so much fear in my life. I, I was so insecure. I, I kept thinking my, my, my mom left. Like, is everyone going to leave? Is, is it only a matter of time before my brother or my dad or... Like, I just, is everyone going to leave? Is this going to be the story of my life? I'll never forget the first time I heard God's voice because I was laying down on bed. We had bunk beds, so my brother was on top. I always made him get on top because I hated the top. And then I was the bottom. And the Lord spoke to me in that moment. And he said, Caleb, even if everyone leaves you, I will never leave you. And you know what happened in that moment? 
I got persuaded. I was six years old, but all of a sudden, man, I knew that Jesus, he was going to be there with me. No matter what came, no matter what difficulties, no matter what storms, no matter what fires. And guys, the persuasion has just grown and grown. And here's why. This isn't to brag about me. Here's why. This is the secret. Persuasion is always connected to presence. You want to be persuaded by God? Then spend time in the presence of God. You want to be persuaded? Then start reading this book, getting to know it, realizing that it's written for you, that every single word can speak to you, give you hope, give you peace, give you joy, give you power. Persuasion is connected to presence. Water is flowing. It flows from God's presence. And finally, my last point, it brings hope and healing. It brings hope and healing. Ezekiel 47, verse 6, this divine messenger, he's leading Ezekiel, and this is what he says. He says, human one, do you see? Do you see? I think that's such an interesting question. Because he doesn't even ask, hey, what do you see? He says, do you see? If I could be really blunt, some of us need to open up our eyes. Because God's been trying to get our attention, and we keep blocking them out. And so this divine messenger, he looks at Ezekiel and goes, hey, do, do you see? And then the scriptures continue, and he led me back to the edge of the river. And when I went back, I saw very many trees on both banks of the river. And he said to me, these waters go out to the eastern region. They flow down to steep slopes and go into the Dead Sea. And when the flowing waters enter the sea, the water becomes fresh. Wherever the water flows, every living thing that moves will thrive. There will be great schools of fish. Because when these waters enter the sea, it will become fresh. And wherever the river flows, everything will live. And in verse 12, I love it. On both banks of the river will grow up all kinds of fruit-bearing trees. Their leaves won't wither, and their fruitfulness won't wane. They will produce fruit in every month because their water comes from the sanctuary, from God's presence. Their fruit will be eating for eating, their leaves for healing. Man, this picture is so incredibly miraculous because you have the Dead Sea in which no living thing's even in it, brimming with life. Vegetation everywhere. Fish actually in it, swimming. And only swimming, but thriving is what the scripture says. You see, it shows us, it proves to us that whatever God breathes on lives. That whatever God's presence touches thrives. That whatever God's power invades is unstoppable. Just like the song that we sang today, man, Jesus, he really does change everything. And you need to know that no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, there's nothing that Jesus cannot breathe on. There's nothing that Jesus cannot bring back to life. I was, I'm going to be super vulnerable, me just being real with you guys. I was in Portland, Oregon a, a few weeks ago, and for my brother's wedding, and it was so fun seeing him, seeing him get married. And, and we were in a coffee shop together, and it was sweet. The morning of his wedding, he goes, I was like, bro, what do you want to do, man? It's your wedding day. Like, whatever you want to do, I got you. And he goes, I want to go to a coffee shop. I want to read our Bibles together. I was like, I love you, bro. <laughs> so we, we drive to this coffee shop, super hipster, because every single coffee shop in Oregon is like the epitome of hipster. And, uh, and so we're there, and we're like reading our Bibles. I'm reading through the book of Hosea, and I just think of myself like, man, but the Old Testament, like prophets, were like another league, you know? Like another caliber. Like I was literally, I was reading through the, the story of Hosea and I was like, man, like, I'm nowhere near this guy. Like this, I got nothing on him. Like, oh my, and I started to feel insecure. I started to actually feel not good enough in that moment. 
I started thinking about all the prophets. I mean, Hosea, the story of Hosea, for those of you that, that maybe don't know or maybe have forgotten, like, like Hosea, literally, he, he got a word from God that said, go marry a prostitute, love her with all your heart. She's going to be unfaithful to you so much so that by your third child, you're going to name him not my son because he's not actually your son. But I still want you to love him. And, and so Hosea does it. <laughs> does it so faithfully. Then you got a guy like Isaiah. His story's a little bit crazier where God goes, I want you to walk around three years just absolutely naked. I forgot what that symbolizes, by the way. I should probably go back to the commentaries, okay? But you know what he does? Isaiah does it for three years. He's just being faithful. And, and then Ezekiel. Oh, man, Ezekiel, his story. It's crazy. Well, there's this heartbreaking moment where, where the Lord actually speaks to Ezekiel. He says, your wife's going to die. And it's going to actually like symbolize the death that has occurred in the nation of Israel. And somehow, man, somehow Ezekiel just still follows God after it. Still is so faithful. Still loves God so much. And the Lord hit me in that moment. And he goes, Caleb, like, you would stand among them. And, and, and before you judge me for being super arrogant, let me unpack this. If you were to tell me that in 2014 I'd, I'd, I'd get married and the next few years would be the slowest, most painful death, that in 2018 she would look at me and say, I, I don't want you, and file for divorce, and that it would be a message of hope and of healing to so many people, I don't know what my response would have been in 2014. I don't know. I probably would have been like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I don't want that. I don't want that calling. You know what's crazy? Is our life story is our message. Our life story is our message. That's the message that God entrusts us. That's the message that God tells us to preach. And that's the message that brings hope and healing to a broken and desperate world. You see, everything that you've been through, everything that you've endured, everything that you've had to navigate through your life, if you surrender it to Jesus Christ, will produce, as Ezekiel said, food for eating and leaves for healing. It will give hope to people. It will bring healing to people. Can I hear an amen? But we have to go deeper. We have to go from ankle deep to knee deep and from knee deep to waist high and I think that last part is so interesting because Ezekiel says in this, in this vision that he receives from the Lord that he couldn't even cross it after a while all he could do was just jump in and swim we get to this place in our lives where we realize I'm all in I'm all in but Jesus you, you got me so wherever you are today in your faith journey, the water is flowing. And it flows from God's presence. And it brings hope and healing to you so that you can go bring it to the broken world around you. Would you pray with me this morning?